Rage, goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son, Achilles. I'm Michael Knowles. This is the book club. We will be singing the rage of Peleus' son, Achilles, in the Iliad by Homer. Probably by Homer. I don't know. We'll get to that question, too. We will be doing it with Joshua Katz, who has read this poem for a very, very long time. A classicist of many, many years, graduate of Yale, of Harvard, professor at Princeton, now senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We will not hold any of those affiliations with those fancy schools against you, Joshua. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. One of them I share with you, That is true. You're outing me on that. This book, I actually didn't read it at Yale uh, because, you know, by the time I went to Yale, we were all reading, I don't know, not quite Ibram Kendi yet, but all sorts of silly things that, that didn't get very often to the real source texts. And this is about as foundational a text as it gets. This is considered, I, I guess, the first major work of Western literature? Yeah. This is a foundational text of Western civilization. It is arguably the foundational text of Western civilization. And what does it mean, the Iliad? The word Iliad means literally the epic of Troy. What is Troy? Troy was a citadel in the far northwest of what is now Turkey across the mainland of Greece across the Aegean Sea. Um, and a Greek word for Troy was Ilion. So the Iliad is the epic of Ilion. It is the epic of Troy. And what the Iliad does is describe the so-called Trojan War, which is an extended battle, a 10-year battle between the Greek forces and the Trojans, that is to say the inhabitants of Troy and their allies. It is not, however, about the full 10 years. It is about 50 odd days and five days in particular in the 10th and final year of that war. And it is a poem about war. It's a poem that has gore and battles and slaughter and destruction, but it's also a poem about men and their intrigues gods and their intrigues, the relationships of gods and men. It's a poem about love and a poem about jealousy, a poem about pride and piety, a poem about valor and despair. It has so many of the great human and, for that matter, I suppose, godly emotions in it. It has so much of human life in it. It has endured because of all of that, and Western civilization wouldn't be Western civilization without it. It has all of those things and it, it touches on all of those things beautifully. I don't want to blow past the gore part. This is probably the most violent piece of art that I have ever read or seen. It makes John Wick look like child's play. All the Marvel movies were Quentin they Tarantino the of 2,800 years ago. <laughs> at least, at least Tarantino. The, and at least 2,800 years, and but maybe least, we'll come back to that. So it's not about the whole Trojan War. In fact, the, the biggest events that we think of when we think of the Trojan War, Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman in the world, the face that launched a thousand ships, her being taken captive to Troy, that's not in there. The, the Trojan horse, probably the most famous image of the Trojan War, that's not in there. Uh, there's all of this background context. Uh, I guess in the same way that when you go see a Marvel movie, you don't see everything about Batman or Superman, but you, I guess that's DC as well. I'm not as totally up to date on my comic book movies. You just go in with a kind of background knowledge and then the story starts off, as the Iliad does, in media race. Right. But there, there must have been a point some decades ago 
in which people had to be introduced to the first superheroes. Hmm. In any time reckoning that we have any understanding of, people knew this story. Hmm. So this was a story which was codified in the 8th century BC. I use the word, the fancy term codified, advisedly because although people say Homer wrote it, there probably wasn't a guy Homer hmm. and he probably didn't write it. It was oral tradition. It goes back centuries and centuries and centuries before, at the very least to the late Bronze Age, which is the period in which things like the historical or quasi-historical Trojan War actually took place. So you have to go back a really, really long time before you see you would have had people who would not have known who these characters were, who would not have known how it is that the Trojan War actually began, who would not have known that there was something called the Trojan Horse, and so on and so forth. So we're in a world in which people, by which I mean completely ordinary people who hear the tales in their villages passed down from generation to generation to generation, People knew these stories. They knew them really, really well. So this is Homer's, if you like, take on all of that. So but all the background, everybody would have known it. Now, taking the background aside for a second, what is the plot of Homer's version? The plot of Homer's version hinges, I suppose, on that word rage that you opened up with. So this is the rage of Achilles. Who was Achilles? Achilles was the greatest of Greek warriors. But he spends a very great amount of time in the Iliad not doing warlike duties whatsoever, but rather for a variety of reasons that we may get into, sulking in his tent or sulking in his hut and not fighting and not allowing other people to bring him back onto the battlefield. But then Eventually, and I'm sure we're going to get into that, he does return to the battlefield, and when he does, all hell breaks loose. It's hardly possible to summarize the Iliad, but basically it's about the rage of Achilles that makes him sulk, and then ultimately the rage of Achilles back on the battlefield that makes him demonstrate that he's the greatest of Greek heroes. So you mentioned the, the main character, Achilles, and there are all these other Greek warriors, uh, Odysseus, Agamemnon, Ajax, Phoenix, the list goes on and on. Then you've got all these Trojan combatants. You've got the greatest fighter in, in Troy, which is Hector. He's sort of the Trojan version of Achilles. Yes. You've got Paris, who's the pretty boy, brother of Hector, Indeed. who who goes and grabs Helen from, from Greece. You've got Priam, the king, the father of these two boys. And we've only talked about the human characters, and that's Indeed. only a fraction of the human characters. There's a whole other level of the story, which is the gods and goddesses. That's right. Right. So the, the gods and goddesses in Homer are very interesting because they seem in some ways almost human. That is to say, they have human emotions. There are gods and goddesses who are on the side of the Greeks. There are gods and goddesses who are on the side of the Trojans. There are gods and goddesses who are neutral or at least pretend to be neutral. There are ones who may seem to be neutral but at one point in the epic favor one side or one warrior, and at another point favor the other side or another warrior, all of which is very fickle and, from our perspective today, kind of un 
godlike behavior. But just as humans are warring, so do the gods war. And so you watch humans interact with one another, you watch gods interact with one another, and you watch the crisscrossing of all of this too. And it's so close that some of the gods and goddesses are are the parents of some of the combatants. Indeed, they're, they're the parents and they come down onto the battlefield, um, often in disguise or often invisible, and well, affect supposedly human change. And so there, there is this question that runs throughout the whole poem, which is how much are the people in control of their own free will, and how much are the gods and goddesses crafting their destiny that's going to come to fruition regardless of the free will, supposed free will, of the combatants. Yeah, this is a, this is a very, very long, very complex question <laughs> on which all sorts of people write long treatises. I'm not really sure we should, we should go there. <laughs> well, because I, I don't know that we'd come to any particular conclusion by the end of it. I'm not sure that the combatants in the Trojan War come to any conclusion. No, I think that's, I think that's right. When, when we come into the story, we're not just in media race. We're actually now nine years into this war. It's going to go on for 10 years. And it's all... It's all because of women. You've got uh, uh, Paris comes over from Troy and takes away the wife of Menelaus, right. who you just mentioned, takes right. away Helen, the most mm -hmm. beautiful woman in the world. And so the they go The face that launched a thousand ships. The face that and launched these a thousand And these are the thousand ships that you have here. Right. But the beginning, the abduction, plays almost no role in the Iliad. Right, it's just, that's Again, just sort of this, background Everybody context. knows this. This yeah. is one of those facts that every single person already knew, so you didn't have to say it. But you can a, allude to it. A, a woman does play a big role. Two women actually play a big role in that very first scene that we Indeed. come in on. Because they've, the, the, these, Greek warlord guys have plundered, they've taken all sorts of goods, and they've taken women, and they get women captives for themselves. And Agamemnon has one. Her name is Chryseis. Chryseis, yes. Chryseis, okay. Mm -hmm. my, my pronunciation no, is no, really terrible. No, it's, no, it's, there, there's, I wouldn't worry about that at okay. all. So, uh, and her father's a priest. And so, King Agamemnon, he gets this, this lady, and all the other guys get their ladies, and Achilles has this lady whose name sounds kind of like Agamemnon's lady. His is Briseis. Exactly. Okay. And so Chryseis's dad, the priest, shows up and says, please give me my daughter back. And Agamemnon says, no, I don't want to do that. And then finally they kind of wear him down, and he, he gives the daughter back. He doesn't want to upset the gods, right. and he's going to go along right. and do that. Okay. But, but in compensation. Yes. King Agamemnon is not going to be without a woman. Exactly. And so who does he take it from? The greatest, the greatest, angriest warrior in the world, Absolutely. Achilles. Take, and this is what sets Achilles on this path to go sulk and whine and cry for the rest of most and of the rage world. and rage. Right. So he he is raging while sulking, an extremely bad combination, right? <laughs> he's essentially alone in his tent. He's yeah. alone in his hut, and he is well, we would say, stewing. But that, yes. that, is, that is rage. And now, of course, he then takes that rage out into the battlefield and, well, I said there was a lot of slaughter. There you go. But initially, in fact, it's because his woman is taken away from him. Let me just piggyback on this to point out that, as you just said, this all began because of Helen, whose face launched a thousand ships. But book one of the Iliad is, in a sense, about or partly about the abduction and the trading, for want of a better word, of a couple of other women. The reason for the Trojan War, which had begun nine or ten years earlier, is totally lost in all of this. And this, by the way, is true of wars very often. Mm -hmm. There's some proximal cause, 
and then you get into it and into it, into it years along, and you kind of forget what's going on. But in the meantime, all kinds of other things happen as well. Right. So what happens, the main action in the Iliad is about a few days in which people are not in the first place thinking about the abduction of Helen. They're thinking about much more immediate concerns that concern them in exactly that week in that year. Right. So we've set the stage for the humans, but we also open the poem with the gods and the goddesses who are playing a very close role. And in one scene in particular, right at that very beginning, this moment where Agamemnon and Achilles are arguing mm -hmm. over the woman, and Achilles is about to pull out his sword and kill Agamemnon. Mm -hmm. He's, he, and he thinks twice about it. Yes. And, and after he thinks twice about it, the goddess also holds his hand back and says, Indeed. no, you're not going to do this. So did, did the goddess stop him from killing Agamemnon? Did his own better judgment stop him from killing Agamemnon? what's the role of fate, what's the role of free will, what's really happening? Well, whole books have been written about that, and so that would be, that would take us many, 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 many hours. Um, what I will say is this, the gods have emotions too, and many of the gods have favorites. So one of the interesting things about the Iliad is that there are gods and goddesses who favor the Greeks, and there are gods and goddesses who favor the Trojans, and there are gods and goddesses who are, or at least pretend to be neutral, and there are ones who are sort of neutral, but at one point perhaps favor the one side, mm -hmm. and at another point perhaps favor another. And, and, and this makes them, well, in a certain sense, very ungodlike in our sense right now. So if you then think about questions of the role of fate, if you want to explore, it, it becomes very, very complicated when you have gods who are actually fickle and don't all ally with one another. Right. And, and it's not just an intellectual, abstract sort of uh, recreation for the gods and goddesses, because many of those gods and goddesses are the parents of the combatants on the field. That is, of course, also true. But those, if you're a parent, then, of course, you have a vested interest. Yeah. So um, who is the mother of Achilles? Thetis. Right, Thetis. Thetis, Thetis if you Thetis, like. See? Right, no, 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 either Thetis, one. So, so Thetis, right, Thetis, Thetis, uh, as, as you like. And, and Thetis plays a large role in the Iliad. Um, in fact, she played a large role in the pre-Iliad in the sense that it was at her wedding to Achilles' father, Peleus, that um, the apple of discord was thrown. None of this is actually in the poem. Yeah. And the result of that was that Paris uh, wanted Helen and Aphrodite gave Helen to Paris and so on. But in the Iliad itself, Thetis plays a very large role. But naturally, because he is her son, yeah. she favors him and favors the Greeks. Now, before we move on from the women, because you mentioned that Aphrodite gives Helen to Paris. And yes. Something that really strikes you about, struck, struck me at least, about the poem is that you expect when these warlords come in and they kill the men and they steal the men's wives and they basically drag them out of there and throw them on their ships and take them to be their own wives, one would suspect that the women were not so keen about that whole thing. And yet, as you read the poem, mm -hmm. Helen calls herself a whore, says, I, of course, I went with this guy. I love, I love my new brother. I love my new husband. I love my new father. Although she then has more complicated 
uh, feelings about Paris, her new yes. husband. But uh, uh, Briseis, the, the uh, woman for Achilles, seems to really love Achilles and, and seems to love Achilles' very good friend Patroclus. And there seems to be a genuine love and affection between the captives of war and the warlords. Maybe I mean Helen plays a very very small role in the Iliad. Right. She throws a, she she shows up a number of times in book three. She she shows up here and there elsewhere. But fundamentally, this is not a poem about about Helen. It's not really a poem about any of the human women except perhaps one you didn't mention, namely Andromache. Yeah. We could come back to that. As for Briseis. She's an example of war booty. She's portrayed uh, as somebody who is indeed fond of Achilles, but you know, are we really supposed to believe that's true, especially if he's carrying on with uh, her, his friend Patroclus? Well, that's another whole question. So now maybe we should explore, or maybe we should well, not explore. We, I, I don't know. We have to explore it because this always comes up in. Any, any discussion of the Trojan War today. This is so unfortunate. It's so unfortunate because they, the, the modern You see, I even people, know what you're going to say. This the, is so unfortunate. The modern people, they say it's all about how Achilles and his friend Patroclus are just a couple of gay guys, mm -hmm. as I guess all those old Greeks were. But I, you know, I, read the, I read the poem and I see Achilles seems to really want this woman, whether it's just for his pride or just to have her as a woman, I, I may, some combination thereof. And then there's one scene where you see Achilles and his buddy lying near one another, mm -hmm. and, uh, but they're lying surrounded by women. Yeah. So they, I don't know, they just don't seem like traditional gay guys to me. Right, I mean there are, well so the first thing to say is that there is absolutely no explicit statement in the Iliad that those two are homosexual lovers. Yep. Absolutely not. There are a couple of places where you can at least understand why somebody might translate their relationship in that old-fashioned and I think rather funny sounding term, boon companionship. So for example <laughs> in, in the 23rd book of the Iliad, the penultimate book, uh, Patroclus, who is already dead, comes to Achilles in a dream and says, when you're dead too, make sure that our bones are buried together in the same urn. Um, that doesn't make them lovers in real life, yep. uh, but it's, it's suggestive. There's also a very brief passage in the final book of the Iliad in which Achilles is talking to his mother and his mother says to him, you know, it's good to have sex even with a woman. And the Greek <laughs> emphasizes the word even and you got to wonder then what actually that means. But again, to be very clear, there is nothing explicit in it. There is, however, a very long tradition yeah. of understanding the two of them of, of having been lovers. So. Sure, if you want to think that, fine. If you don't want to think that, fine. Um, it's an aspect of the poem, but it's an aspect of right. the poem. So they, we'll move past the women. We'll move past uh, whether these guys, you know, are a little light in the sandals together. And, and we'll get into all of this bloody, gory fighting. Okay. Because this was the, the and uh, Patroclus and Achilles and all these guys are, are really skilled warriors. And as I'm reading it, as I read it the first time especially, I thought, wait, this is the greatest work of Western literature is just this 
poem about that goes into excruciating detail on how some warrior sliced off some guy's jawbone and made mm-hmm. his guts rip out of his belly and the black blood dripped everywhere as mm-hmm. the as the man begged for his life and Achilles laughed at him and just starts gutting the poor. I thought, am I missing something here? No, um, but let me <laughs> let me emphasize a different aspect of the way the war is portrayed. Um, And that's to talk about something that works exceptionally well in Greek, but also works very well in good English translations, and that's the role of similes. So throughout the Iliad, both in scenes of battle and otherwise, but let's concentrate on the battle scenes, you have heroes described with extensive similes, and in particular, often animal similes. So, for example, in the 22nd book of the Iliad, which is one of the greatest of the books, it's the one in which Hector dies. It's the one in which Achilles, um, who is the greatest of Greek warriors, finally vanquishes Hector, who is the greatest of the Trojan warriors. And in the space of a few hundred lines, you have the following. You have Hector as a snake, like a snake in his hole, except the simile is much, much longer than what I'm saying now. He is like a snake in his hole waiting for Achilles. And then Achilles uh, appears and swoops down on Hector like a hawk. And then not much later, uh, when it looks as though Achilles is about to win, and indeed in that book he does win, he does kill Hector, he chases Hector around the walls of Troy the way a, a hound, you know, a trained hound goes after a poor deer. And then, you know, you think Achilles is about to win, but then Hector swoops down on Achilles like an eagle, but that's his last act because then Hector takes his his spear, and his spear is gleaming like the brightest star in the sky, and then it's over. So in the course of a few hundred lines, not only do you have the dynamics of war, not only do you have um, gore and the intimation of, of gore, but you have each of these great heroes, one animal, often a very fierce animal, against another, or an animal whose job it is to go after another animal, mm-hmm. and so on. And you just have it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So sure, we can talk about the anatomical reality of having things go through jawbones, and that's very, very impressive too. But rhetorically, what's really spectacular mm-hmm. are these similes. And, and also even the way the characters are brought up. It's never just Achilles did this or Odysseus did that. It's always Odysseus, the great tactician, does this. Indeed. Agamemnon, the breaker of horses, does this. Yes. Well, so this is a part of the rhetoric of oral tradition. There are reasons why these taglines essentially are in there. They can sometimes be funny. So, for example, Achilles is always described as swift of foot, but he's described as swift of foot even when he's sitting down and not <laughs> going anywhere. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Now, they they describe parts of the personality here, and I, I want to focus in on the personality of someone like Odysseus. Okay. Odysseus. Have me back, and we'll talk about the Odyssey. Uh, we should uh, talk about Absolutely. the Odyssey. We, we brought up Odysseus when we read The Divine Comedy by Dante, mm-hmm. because Odysseus is presented as this deceiver, as this, you know, perpetrator of fraud. And that's how he's portrayed in the Iliad as well. And there's specifically a scene in, in which put aside the swords and the violence and the blood and the guts Mm -hmm. and the gore for a second, in which speech 
comes to the forefront of, of the political tactics. And that would be the embassy to Achilles. So this is after he's off sulking, after the Greeks are getting mm -hmm. demolished by the Trojans. Agamemnon yes. says, I went crazy. I don't know why I took this man's woman. The gods must have put it in my head to do it. I didn't mean to. It was completely insane. You guys got to go get Achilles back into mm -hmm. the fight. And so who does he send? He sends Odysseus, Phoenix, and Ajax. Mm -hmm. And all three make speeches to Achilles. Achilles welcomes them in. And they make different kinds of speeches. Odysseus basically tries to bribe him and tell him about all the nice stuff that, that uh, Agamemnon's going to give him. Phoenix tries to speak like a father and, and say, you know, come on, pal, you sort of owe me this. Mm -hmm. I've always wanted this from you. Mm -hmm. Why? You know, and Ajax tries to guilt trip him like yes. any good Sicilian grandmother, you know, just right. tries to browbeat the, the guy. And, and so they're, they're all totally different rhetorical styles. Yes. And they all fail. And they all fail. And they all fail, right? So this is, this is, a, this is book nine of the Iliad. This is a wonderful book. It's wonderful for all sorts of reasons. It's wonderful, perhaps politically as well, except that the rhetoric doesn't actually work. You know, what actually gets Achilles back into the battle? It isn't rhetoric. No, it's because his It's, it's his because his died. boon companion, yeah. <laughs> who got sent off in his own armor yep. to fight, i.e. sent off in his stead, yeah. literally, uh, dies. And this is important, too, because we saw the speech fail at the embassy to Achilles. But the conclusion from that is, is not just that talk is cheap and all that matters is stabbing people, because actually <laughs> right, right, right after Achilles leaves in a rage to go into the battle because his buddy died, it, it is an act of speech that starts killing people. That's right. it's, it's an amazing scene where Achilles walks out and he's supposed to wait for his mother to bring him new armor from Hephaestus, mm -hmm. the, the, yes. the smith. And, uh, but but he, he doesn't do that. He, he hears from another god to yeah. go out yeah. and just show his presence. Yep. That's going to scare the Trojans. And he just screams. And he mm -hmm. screams three times. And like a dozen Trojans right. die from yes. the scream. Yes. This is true. Um, <laughs> Why are you interested in this? Do you think that our politics would be better now if we went and did that rather than attempt I think we're seeing to reason it in action. speeches? Yes. That's all we're getting in our current political rhetoric. Yeah. Well, also because that shows you a, an act of, if not speech, at least sound, that is having a political effect uh, and, and a, you know, a, a, a de deadly one. But then at the end of the poem, after Hector, the greatest uh, Trojan warrior, has been killed by Achilles, yes. Achilles says, I'm not going to give a proper burial to Hector because they were going to let my buddy's body lie out in the dirt and have the dogs eat it until we Greeks came and took it yep. back. Well, I'm going to do the same for Hector. I want the dogs to eat this. Right. You know, He's already dragged Hector's body back repeatedly to the yeah. around the walls of Troy, uh, uh, you know, behind his chariot. So yes. he, has, he has thoroughly, thoroughly disfigured, disgraced D and dis, choose your verb, everything to his arch enemy. And, and he, at this point, he has just gone into a mode of absolute mercilessness. Exactly. And so he's, uh, one of my favorite lines, I can actually imagine Achilles saying this to a waiter. The waiter says, what do you want, what do you want to eat? And he says, you talk of food? I have no taste for food. I crave only blood and slaughter and the choking groans of men. He, has n he doesn't even have an appetite anymore beyond just killing. And so Hector's father at this point. And then amazingly, amazingly, and this is what you're going to talk about, amazingly it yes. shifts. Because this dad shows up and he, he says, look, 
I'm Priam of Troy. He's the I'm, king of Troy. So Priam, I'm Hector's father, and for that matter, the father of Paris, the guy who started the Trojan started the War in the war. first place. Paris is sort of the wussy child. Hector is He's the, the pretty strong boy. one. He's the pretty boy, exactly. Um, Priam, the, the elder king of Troy, now thoroughly defeated, shows up. And what does he do? He says, can I please have my son's body back, please? Yeah. And, Achille and, and Achilles gives it to him. Yeah. And he gives it to him gracefully, and he says, now there is going to be a truce for nine or, or ten days so that you can have a proper f funeral and burial of your son. Once that's over, the war will resume. That's the end of the Iliad. We don't then have the resumption of the war. We know that it's about to be over. But he actually grants the father of Hector um, this wish. Why? Why did Priam's speech persuade Achilles? It's a very, it's a very beautiful speech. I mean, he says, he says to, um, to Achilles, uh, it's a terrible thing to be a father who has to kiss, effectively kiss the ring, kiss the hand of the man who killed his son in order for his son to have any respect left in, in well, the afterlife. Right. He's, he says, very I, I bring a priceless ransom that I am coming to you and I'm kissing the, kissing the hand of, of the man who killed my son. Yeah. And it softens Achilles. But it, Achilles, he starts, Priam's crying, Achilles is crying, Priam's crying for mm -hmm. his son, Achilles is crying for his own father, he's crying for his buddy, he's cr they're all just crying. And then they collect themselves and then Achilles does harden a little bit again. And he says, old man, you don't think I see what you're doing. The yeah. only way you got in here is because you had the favor of the gods. Sure. Take, your, take your son. Sure. Don't, don't push me too far. Right. But everybody has the favor of the gods. I mean, he knows perfectly well that he, too, yeah. has had the favor of, of some of the gods. And, and th this, this softness of Achilles that you actually see even as Achilles is killing people. Mm -hmm. There's one Trojan begging for his life mm -hmm. on his knees. And Achilles, he seems almost surprised by the guy begging for his life. He says, he calls him friend. Yeah. He says, friend, why are you begging for your life? Don't you know that it is your fate that I'm going to kill you right now? You're a mortal man. You're going to die at some point. It's because I'm going to stab you right mm -hmm. now. But don't, listen, buddy, don't worry. I'm about to die too. Exactly. Someone's going to cut me down in battle. Exactly. So really, in a way, one of the most moving scenes in the Iliad, which we have not talked about, is in Book 9. That's the one with the embassy that you mentioned, in which Achilles gives the greatest speech about life's choice. And life's choice is, do you want to go off, fight, win glory, win, as the Greek says, so-called imperishable fame, and die? But hey, you will, your fame will live forever. And indeed, thanks to this poem, which uh, sells millions of copies still now, the fame continues. Do you want that? Or do you want to live a long, quiet life on your farm, you know, happy and nobody knows who you are? And the answer to the Greeks is entirely clear. The answer is you want to fight and do your best fighting and earn that glory. So in effect, that's what is motivating those sorts of interactions. You have to have some respect for the other guys who go out there and do the fighting rather than the ones who stay at home and cultivate their garden. And Achilles has the choice. His, his mother presents him with this choice. Says, Here, I'm just telling you what's going to happen, of course. son. If, if you stay and fight this of war, course. you'll die. And so he... It's not that he just says, well, we are where we are. Let's go down in glory. He, yes, he, he had, knows exactly what he's doing. He had the choice. Did he make the right choice? 
we wouldn't have the Iliad without that. I mean, we wouldn't have the Iliad if all sorts of people didn't make choices like that. We probably wouldn't have Western civilization if people didn't make choices like that. Frankly, we probably wouldn't have all kinds of civilizations if people didn't make choices like that. So, yes, he made the right choice. Good enough for me right now. Now, we'll see how much longer Western civilization lasts. <laughs> that might color the way we think about it. But I think it's, it's endured for a few millennia, just like this book has endured for a few millennia. And might have a little more time left. This book gets translated into language after language all the time. This book has been translated into English, I don't know, eight, eight times, I mean, probably more than that, but eight or so times in, in the last few decades. Fagel's is from, is from 1990. Uh, in 2014 and 2015, there were three translations into English in a two-year period. I mean, this is, this is just astounding. People care. Before I let you go, we haven't really mentioned, other than looking forward to you coming back so we can talk about the Odyssey, it's a very different poem from the sequel, which is the Odyssey it is. where Odysseus takes the men home through all sorts of trials and tribulations to get back to Ithaca after the Trojan War. Yes. Why? They're both ostensibly written by Homer. Ah, but you see, not Homer and not written. I mean, the language of the Odyssey owes something to the language of the Iliad, one normally says as a kind of imitation, but it is clearly linguistically later. Um, it is clearly linguistically different. These are both products of an oral tradition, an oral tradition about the, the Trojan War, how we got there, what happened after it. Um, but it's not as though they are monolithic, hmm. as a, a, you know, a pair of monolithic pieces by one guy. They're just not. We'll have to have you back to discuss this very different work. I look forward to it. Thank you very much, Joshua, for coming on. In Thanks meantime, for having me. I am Michael Knowles. This is the book club. Rage! Rage against your teachers who won't present to you the great works of Western civilization. At the very least, you can get them here. Happy reading. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for watching this episode of The Book Club on PragerU. PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so we rely on donations from viewers like you to keep this content on the air. Please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today to help keep this content coming. Thank you very much.